0: like to welcome this congregation on this beautiful, beautiful morning, and we certainly are grateful to have everyone here. Uh, everyone includes all the little ones, all the children, and all the uh, folks that are here this morning. What a blessing to be able to gather into a formal, organized church service. And uh, it is so amazing to consider, since the year 1941, there has been continuous services along this little country road. Now, that doesn't seem like a long time to some people. But if you go back to 1941, that's a long number of years. And a lot of history has Poured into that time period since 1941. Many, many, many events of history. And what a change has come to this country. So we're going to be turning now and uh, we're going to go to Genesis chapter number nine and wind up the Genesis flood. Now we have by popular demand some questions that have been raised. And we're going to try to answer those questions today. So the first question that has been raised that people would like to have answered about the Genesis flood that we'll deal with here is going to be about the covenant that God made at the end of this flood why was the Genesis flood so important that a sovereign God decided that he had to make a covenant a promise that it would never occur again that never again would the earth be covered by a global flood of water so we're going to try to answer that question and we're going to turn to Genesis chapter number nine and do that. So I'm going to have now, if I can, Brother uh, Austin and Brother Jamie and Brother Seth, come up here, and Brother Ezekiel and read for us. And we will be in Genesis chapter 9, and I pray that everyone will open your Bible and turn there, and we will read now, we will read in unison, beginning in Genesis chapter number 9, and we will begin the reading here this morning in this wonderful place to Genesis 9, verse, Genesis chapter 9, verse 9. Or I guess we could say begin with verse 8. Genesis 9, beginning in verse 8. And we will not end until we come to verse 19. So if everyone could open your Bible to Genesis 9, beginning in verse 8. Here we go. And God spake unto unto Noah, Noah, and and to his sons sons with them, saying, "And And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your seed after you,
1: and with every living creature that is with you, of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark, to every beast of the earth, and I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood, neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant That went forth of the ark were Shem and and Ham and and Japheth and and Ham is the father of Canaan. These These are are the three sons of Noah, and and of them was the whole earth overspread.
0: Amen and amen. Thank you, gentlemen, for the good reading. Having read the word of God, we have now read from the Holy Bible words that were recorded by Moses and they were recorded to witness to the only one true and living God who alone still lives and who witnessed the Genesis flood. I always love to think when we're reading about history in the Bible, and particularly when it is directed from God's perspective, That he is still a living witness. So think about these words are from someone who is living and and alive and well today. God Almighty who lives and dwells in eternity. Timeless. There is no time with God. He lives in an an eternity where there is no time. Why did God then make a covenant with Noah? What was the purpose? Well, we might ask and venture back with this question. Every major intersection in Bible history is marked by a covenant when you eliminate covenants from your Bible background understanding and theology you have just removed the essence of Scripture from the Bible and from your portfolio of Bible knowledge. So every major event is marked by a covenant. When God made A garden called the Garden of Eden and put Adam and Eve in it. He gave Adam a covenant. It's called the Edenic Covenant. It was a conditional covenant. They, that was a conditional covenant based upon their willingness to obey the voice of God. They disobeyed God and lost their status in that world of innocence and perfection. And then God entered into a second covenant. It's called the Adamic covenant. It was an unconditional covenant because it conditioned fallen man in the world to which he had fallen. So the Adamic covenant is still living with us today. The women suffer under that covenant because they're called to bear children in sorrow multiply and bear children they're called to be under the headship all of those are provisions of the edemic covenant man is to work by the sweat of his brow and all of those are the conditions of that covenant and a lot more the noah covenant is the third covenant It is the third covenant of the Bible, but it's not the last one. The whole Bible at every great juncture of history has a covenant. The single greatest of all the covenants is the Abrahamic covenant. The reason for that is because every other covenant flows out of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant may be thought of as the grandfather covenant of everything that happens after Genesis chapter 12 to the end of the book of Revelation. You will not find any any covenant in the Bible that does not after Genesis 12 that does not connect itself back to Abraham. Every covenant including the new covenant reaches back to Abraham. So time that you're separating Abraham out from a covenantal faith, you have just lost something valuable. So back to the Noahic covenant. Did you notice <clears throat> that in the reading the word covenant appears seven times? Seven times that word covenant appeared from Genesis chapter 9 verse 8 to the end of that reading. That's a lot of times in a short period of time. The word covenant is from a Hebrew root word beareth, and it means to cut. It means to cut. When God makes a covenant, He cuts a covenant. He enters into a contract, and that covenant will either be unconditional, or it will be conditional. If it's conditional, it will be based upon man's performance to the covenant. If it's unconditional, it means that God will ensure the viability of that covenant indefinitely because He is the one who keeps that covenant in force at all times. We are here today, beloved, believe me, because of God's promise to Abraham. That's why we are here. Every one of us were baptized on the basis of the promise God made to Abraham. Everyone that was ever that ever believes that comes to faith is baptized and becomes a Christian, is resting their salvation on a promise God made to one man, Abraham. That is why he is called Father Abraham. That is why the prophet Isaiah in chapter 51 says, Look to Abraham your father. Look to Sarah that bear you. We are all called children of Abraham, but we're more than just children of Abraham. We're children of the promise God made to Abraham. Now, every covenant comes with a sign that seals God's ownership and mark upon the people to whom the covenant was made. When God made a covenant with Abraham, remember, he cut that covenant, and then he signed that covenant with the sign of circumcision, which in itself is a cutting. So every covenant has a sign that we'll call the signature of that covenant. It's an outward and visible sign of some inward and spiritual condition. So that's very important that we keep that in mind. So when you think of the Abrahamic covenant. The sign of the covenant was circumcision. But I have a question for you. What did, Mo, did Abraham have salvation before he received the sign? Question. Question. Did he have salvation before he had the sign? The answer is yes. How do we know that? We just have to turn to Genesis 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. He's not even been circumcised. Hello? No circumcision has taken place. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. In chapter 17, God is going to put a sign to Abraham's faith. He's going to sign him in to a covenant. And Genesis 17 is all about the Abrahamic covenant, the signature of that covenant, which is circumcision. Now, when you are baptized, you are baptized on the foundation of the promise made to Abraham. Just like you were signed into the covenant of the Old Testament if you were born an Israelite. You were signed into the Old Covenant by circumcision. And that is what made you a member of that covenant. Girls were signed into the covenant under the headship of their father. Under the new covenant, it's a better covenant. A better covenant. So the girls also are baptized because baptized, a baptism is also a circumcision. It's a circumcision of the heart. It's a cutting of the heart. It's a breaking of the hardness of the heart. It's breaking through the pride of man, and the depravity of man, and bringing that heart into obedience, and yielding it unto God through Jesus Christ. So baptism is a circumcision made without hands. That's what the Bible calls baptism. Where? in Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 you can read about the baptism made without hands. It's called signing you into the covenant. So God doesn't change his, his model from one generation to another. God always works through a covenant. When we are not Bound to a covenantal theology, we're like a little ship out on the ocean without a compass. A ship without a rudder, we're just aimlessly drifting. We don't know where the current's going to take us. We don't know where life is going to take us because we're living by random chance. You cannot live by random chance, church your life is not built on random chance. When you wake up tomorrow, that day is under a covenantal shield, and every day of your life is a planned day. So I encourage everyone to become a covenant-minded Christian. Now, We've said that every covenant comes with a signature. If you look at Romans chapter 4 verse 11. Now if you want to understand the covenants. You've got to read the New Testament. Romans chapter 4 verse 11. Tells us explicitly. That Abraham received circumcision. Which was the seal of his faith. The sign that sealed his covenantal standing with God. When you think of baptism, you're thinking of baptism in the same covenantal pattern. And let me tell you why. If you go to the book of Acts, to what is called the singular greatest sermon delivered in New Testament Christianity. You will find it in Acts chapter 2. At the end of that sermon, the Apostle Peter, who is doing the preaching, he comes to the end of that lesson in Acts 2 and verse... 36, and he says to the Israelites gathered there, he tells them and he chides them, because he lets them know that the same Jesus whom they crucified, the same Jesus who they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, is both Lord and Messiah. So I want you to just look for a moment, look for a moment at Acts 2 and let the Word of God reach into your heart for just a moment as we turn to Acts chapter 2 and we'll turn to Acts 2 and verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly (coughs) that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, what happened? They were pricked in their hearts. Why were they pricked in their hearts? Because they had helped crucify Jesus. They knew that they had participated in his crucifixion. So when they they said to Peter, And the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We have been guilty of helping to crucify Jesus. What shall we do? Peter's answer is one of the most historic answers found in Scripture. Let's read it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and ye shall receive the gift of the holy ghost <clears throat> for the promise is unto you and to your children now wait a minute fix your eyes on that verse for the eye for the eyes of god were fixed on israel that day and The Apostle Peter said, For the promise of God is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, all the Israelites of the dispersion, even as many as the Lord our God, shall what? Shall call. That's an enormous statement. It carries powerful theological meaning. This promise, what promise? The promise God made to Abraham. What was that promise? Redemption, salvation, deliverance from sin, and deliverance from the ultimate judgment and wrath of God to escape the damnation of judgment. The promise is to you and to your children. So look at your children. Were they included in the Old Testament Abrahamic covenant? Did God, I only heard a few people respond. Did God include the children in the Abrahamic covenant? Thank you. Does he exclude the children in the new covenant? built on the same foundation, same promise. When we go back to the Genesis flood, people, God made a covenant with Noah before he ever entered into the ark. You can read about that covenant in chapter 6. So what we're reading here in Genesis 9 is a reaffirmation of what God already told Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you before you ever enter that ark, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. So this covenant, beloved, is really a signature of God's promise that He is not going to lose His covenant people. God is not going to lose His covenant people. In every generation... There will be a body of believers who will survive to the next generation. So rest in faith. Believe in God. Trust in God. So God gave a sign to the covenant he gave to, to Noah. What was that sign? An outward and visible something, a signature of the covenant. What was the sign? Help me. Rainbow. A rainbow. A beautiful rainbow that splashes across the sky. And from one light, from one white light, God brings a whole array of beautiful colors. Red, yellow, indigo, and there's a whole... Th- every color in the spectrum is in the rainbow. And that that rainbow is made when little droplets, infinitesimally small droplets of water, are suspended in space and the sunlight perforates through those little raindrops creating A marvelous testimony of God's sign that never again will he destroy the earth by a flood of waters. Never again will God baptize the earth in water. So that's what we need to know about the covenant God made with Abraham. And then as he's making it now with Noah. That God's covenantal blessing will always follow His people. And our our presence here today is resting, anchored, in a covenant relationship that God made with Abraham. And the, the Noahic covenant flows out of that Abrahamic covenant. So it has a sign just like every other covenant has a sign what we want to do now beloved is to answer some other questions that have risen about the flood when we look at the flood we've already insisted that the genesis flood is correlated to the events that will characterize the ending of the age. We can measure the end of history by what is happening in the days of Genesis when the flood came. Psychologically when we look at the the Genesis flood, we can relate it to our generation because we're under a flood today. Not a flood of water, but it's a flood equal to that, I believe, or very closely equal to that of Noah's generation, where evil is just simply growing at an accelerated level that is beyond all question. We are now on the verge in this country of endorsing pedophilia. We're getting very close to endorsing bestiality bestiality. bestiality. We are becoming totally and utterly corrupt as a nation. Now, there's millions of people that do not endorse and they abhor this this, this vile teaching. But the the people that are in the power structures. Of the nation are insisting that everyone is going to believe it. They're determined that everyone is going to participate in the evil. And we have to be just as determined that we are not going to, detri- to participate in the evil. We know that the prophet Isaiah in chapter 54 Isaiah used the covenant God made with Noah as an example of how he would preserve Israel. Isaiah reminds us in chapter 54, verses 5 through 10, that just as God preserved Noah when the earth was overflowed with water, You can read that on your own, Isaiah 54, 5 through 10. So God would preserve Israel from the ravages of destructive elements. It's a wonderful promise. The psalmist David uses Psalm 104, verses 1 through 9. He goes back to the Genesis flood in Psalm 104, verses 1 through 9. Now, this is David. David takes his people back to Noah and the flood to let them know of the awesome power of God and God's ability to deliver. Which may be one of the reasons that the Bible devotes so much time to the Genesis flood. And then the Apostle Peter correlates the end of time in history with the Genesis flood. Now think of this, the Apostle Peter, together with St. Paul, St. James, St. Jude, St. John, are the primary writers of the New Testament. And one of those foundational apostles, takes an entire chapter, Second Peter chapter 3, to tell every generation of Christians that the consummation of history will end in catastrophic judgment, just as the world under Noah ended in catastrophic judgment the word is catastrophic. It's called the theology of catastrophism. The idea of God turning loose, tremendous, tremendous divine judgment. So with those thoughts in mind, the question arises, what are some fundamental points of Bible truth that the Genesis Flood did not change in any way. We know that it changed a lot of things, changed the entire earth itself. It changed the population of the world, radically reduced the population of the world. What else did it alter? Well, it altered the seasons. We didn't have seasons before the flood. So there's a world of things that were introduced at the time of the Genesis flood. A tremendous ice age followed the Genesis flood. You've read about the ice age. That age followed the Genesis flood. For a a long time after the flood, the earth was still coming back to its present state. Took it quite a long time to settle down after that Genesis Flood event came to a close. So what else can we say remained unchanged? What are some other things, major things that the Genesis Flood did not alter, did not change, did not in any way alter from the way it had always been. Well, number one, the sovereignty of God remained unchanged. Our God is sovereign over all of the earth and heaven. He governs the earth. He created the world, sustains the world. He will judge the world. God is always in charge, not a part of the world, every part of the world. Not one molecule in the universe is out of His control. There's not a day that occurs on planet in time and history that's not under God's sovereignty. So that's one thing that does not change, absolutely. A second principle that doesn't change is God's sovereignty and the judgment upon sin. The Genesis flood is a witness to God's sovereign judgment upon sin. Now that's very important because when judgment befalls this world, it's going to be because God's holiness demands that the justice of God be meted out. We cannot have a holy God who does not have the right to meet justice upon sin. So God's design for judgment upon sin will never change. God's a desire for the multiplication of children didn't change. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. He told Noah and his family <clears throat> to be fruitful and to multiply. And God tells the sons of Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. And There's a whole lot that can be said about God's desire for the expansion of his people. Now, I just want to mention two points about that. A lot of people wonder today about the white race. And they wonder if the sons of Noah are all represented today in the earth. Well, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are, but one of those sons is the predominant son because Shem was accorded the covenant status. Noah had three sons, but only one became a covenant son. Shem was the father of five sons, but only one of his sons became a covenant son. Who was that son? It wasn't Asher. It wasn't Elam. It wasn't Aram. It was Arphaxad. Arphaxad. Now, here's the thing. Of all the individuals that God could have chosen, he had, Noah had 16 grandsons. And God could have picked any one of the 16, but he went to the one that had the lineage, the lineage that he looked for. And that lineage began with Adam, Seth, Enos, Cainan, Mahalaliel, and right on down the line to Noah. And then Noah's the father of three sons, as we read. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but only one of those is going to be a covenant son, and that is Shem, and he's going to give, he's going to father five sons, but only little Arphaxad is going to be the line through which Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the tens of millions and millions of white people on the earth today are descended. And I believe that I can build a good case to show that the seed of Abraham through Isaac back to Arphaxad, back to Shem, back to Noah, back to Adam, are the most prolific part of the white race today. Japheth is a minority. Ham is a minority. The majority is descended from Arphaxad, whose father was Shem. Now, if you will look in your Bible to Isaiah 27, verse 6, the prophet Isaiah makes a powerful statement. He says that they that come of Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the earth with fruit. There's no other person in the Bible given that promise. No other person was ever told that you're going to blossom, you're going to bud, and you're going to fill the face of the earth with fruit. That's the promise God made to Rebekah when she's getting ready to marry Isaac. God, through the voice of prophecy, tells Rebecca, you're gonna be the mother of thousands of millions of children. Now, when you read that statement, that seems utterly, overwhelmingly impossible. Mother of thousands of millions of people. But when Queen Victoria was on the throne 1837 to 1901, that was a very long reign, exceeded only by Queen Elizabeth now on the throne, who is now the longest reigning monarch in all of history that we know about. In the reign, during the reign of Queen Victoria before and after, in that time frame, the white race of people from the line of Shem populated most all of the white world. They populated more of the world than any other race. They were the, numerically, they were the race that peopled the earth. Now, there were people in China and all these other places, of course. But we don't even know what they were doing. Truth is, they had no culture, no civilization to speak of. Now, I know that what I'm saying here would not be acceptable in the court of public opinion, but that's not what we're looking for, is approval from the world. We're looking for truth, and one principle that never changed regarding the Genesis flood is the idea to multiply and produce children. Now, there's one other problem that arises from the Genesis flood. So, at this point in time, you will you will need to fasten your seat belt because we need to take a little ride. We need to take a little excursion. We'll not be able to to. Uh, Consider this a normal Bible excursion. First of all, because it would be largely rejected to even ask the question in most theological circles. So here's the question. The question is this. When God placed enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent... How did that survive the flood? How did the enmity survive that flood? Now, how many think you can, that you figure that out? All right, I see some hands, and, and that makes me happy. <laughs> because I need to visit with you and see what you can teach me. Let's go to Genesis 3.15 in our mind. God speaking says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, help me, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. Now how do we know that the enmity that's planted there by a sovereign God in the consequence of sin survived the flood because of the crucifixion of Jesus, because of his conception. Every effort to prevent the conception of Jesus as the principal seed of the woman was the modus operandi of the serpent and his children throughout history. They killed Cain to kill off the messianic line. They destroyed the little children in the days of Herod. Herod ordered the murder of the little children to do what? Cut off the Messiah that was alleged by the wise man to have been born. Pharaoh ordered the the slaughter of all the male children. Why? To cut off the potential of the messianic promise of the Lord Jesus Christ from ever coming to fruition. Every major event of Old Testament history is to destroy the messianic hope of what is called the Proto-Evangelium, the promise of a Redeemer in Genesis 3.15. Now I have said for a long time, folks, That if you use every piece of the Bible and think of it as a piece of a puzzle, we'll call it the Bible puzzle. And you had all the 31,102 verses laid out on a table. The box top verse for putting all those pieces together is Genesis 3.15. Now, if you've ever tried to put a large puzzle together without anyone showing you what the puzzle is supposed to look like when it's finished, and you just sort through the puzzle pieces until you finally get it together, it's not easy, is it? Millions of Christians read the Bible, the puzzle verses of Scripture, they try to put them together and they never, they never fit. They struggle all their life to build the puzzle called the Bible and put it together into a meaningful panorama of truth. So the, the box top verse is Genesis. The question is, if the flood was global, how in the world did the enmity get through the flood? Now, wait a minute. Keep in mind that everyone outside the ark is destroyed. If you believe the Bible, all flesh died. All flesh means everything. Nothing was left alive outside the ark. If you believe the testimony of God. Now reread those verses in Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 9 again. All flesh, everything that breathed, died in the flood. How then How then did that enmity survive? The only way it's going to survive is to get someone from the serpent seed through the flood. Because they're not going to survive outside the flood. How many agree to that? All right. So we agree to that. We're we're, We're starting to agree. That's great. Now, folks, having agreed that everything died outside the ark, we are greeted with a little problem at the end of the reading this morning. It tells us in verse 18 of chapter 9 that Ham is the father of Canaan. See that word named Canaan? Why did Moses, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, need to tell us who the father of Canaan was? Who is Canaan? Well, you say he's the son of Ham. Yes. Who's his mother? It's not said. The Bible is silent. It does not tell us. Now, to understand this puzzle, we have to think and we have to rightly divide the Word of God. So, open your Bible to Genesis 9 and notice something. Sometime after the flood, we don't know how long, sometime after the flood, Canaan was born. He was born after the flood, but conceived before the flood ended. Before they left the ark, Canaan was conceived. Now, have I dived off into such a deep place in the ocean that I cannot make myself come back to shore. Am I going to swim back to shore or drown? So let's see. Notice something here. I'm in verse 23. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it both upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered their nakedness the nakedness of their father, and they, their faces were, were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. Now we know that, that Shem and Japheth knew that Noah was inebriated in his tent and had been stripped of all of his clothes because Ham, verse 22, the father of Canaan, Again, we're reminded who the father of Canaan is. Saw the nakedness of his father, told his two brother and without. So, being good brothers and good sons, Japheth and Shem, walked backward and covered up their father. Now, typically, it has been said that what might have happened, could have happened, is that Ham committed an incestual act with his mother. Now, if that were true, it would still not help us out of our dilemma because Noah married the, the, the granddaughter of Enoch who was a pure, unadulterated seed. And I find it untenable that Noah's dear wife, who had endeared herself through the arduous age of the years before the flood, in the ark, would have allowed an incestual act to have occurred. So I, I cannot buy that. I cannot buy the idea that Noah's wife capitulated to a renegade incestual act. I cannot accept that. Because it solves no problem at all for me. It doesn't tell me where Canaan came from. So I have to search. Why did Ham, when he notified his brothers, and, and he was ashamed of whatever had happened? I find that shame, that shame is, is part of, of what was bothering Ham as well. Now... I know typically people believe that Ham is the guilty party here. But I think Canaan was the guilty party. Look down at your Bible. When Noah, in verse 24, awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Typically, everybody's going to say, or most everyone's going to say, well, that's ham. I ask the question, is it really? Do you know that the expression younger son could have equally applied to a grandson? Now, if it wasn't Canaan that committed the sin, why then was he the one that was cursed? Ham was not the one that was cursed. That's where the judgment should have fallen if it was on if Ham was guilty. But the judgment fell upon Canaan, the seed that was cursed. From that seed will come the nations, the eleven sons, that will develop into the eleven tribes of the Canaanite world, which God commanded Moses to condemn, and Joshua commanded that every last one of them be destroyed. Canaan's posterity is the prolific seed of Genesis 10 that populated the land of Canaan they were Israel's enemies. Ham's descendants were not notably good, but they were not the eternal enemies of Israel, but Canaan was. The Canaanites were. Now, whatever you may do with all of this is somewhat immaterial, because whatever path you carve out. In the end, we can all agree. When Jesus looked at some people and said, You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Who was that? Cain. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he's the liar and the father of it. When the Apostle John, 1 John 3, 11 and 12 said, This is the message you heard from the beginning. Not as Cain, Cain, C-A-I-N, who was of that. Wicked one. So what is the connection between Cain and Canaan? Pre-flood Cain, post-flood Canaan. We have a flood between Cain and Canaan. Now, this leaves us, in order for the enmity to be perpetuated, this leaves us with but one conclusion. When the Bible says, when the Bible, God's Word says, in verse 15 of chapter 7, Genesis, they went in unto Noah into the ark, Two and two of all flesh wherein is the breath of life. That had to include the unclean, the unclean, the wicked seed of the serpent. Otherwise, God lied to us in Genesis 3.15. Because the enmity between the two seed lines is not going to expire At the flood. If it expires at the flood. Then why was Jesus nailed to the cross? And at the end of the age. Why will Jesus according to St. Paul. Romans 16 20. Crush the head of the serpent. Now. I'm going to end this lesson with this. The Bible tells us. In the words of Jesus, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, Judeans, Judeans, but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. That's Jesus. He delineated between the real descendants of Judah and the seed of that serpent called the old devil and Satan. That old serpent called the devil and Satan. Revelation twelve nine, Revelation twenty verse two. So the 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 summation here, folks, is this that when you come to the end of the story, the enmities did survive the Genesis flood because the enmity will not be ending until the consummation of history has ended. In the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, protocol number three states that we have chosen the symbol of the serpent as a serpent of our race. When the head of the serpent has completely circled the earth, we will set up our kingdom. Every person that is a leading spokesperson for the World Economic Forum today that wants to build a one-world government is Jewish. Not the tribe of Judah. No, no, no. But they are Ashkenaz, Mongol, Khazarian Jews, everyone. And they are packed into the White House. They are packed into the FBI, the Justice Department. And we are in the war of the ages. We are in the war of the ages. And the Bible says Our God will win. Our God will win. Jesus is the Savior. Promised to crush the head of the serpent, it is to return. And when the head is crushed, the body will die. Did you ever see a snake live that had its head cut off? No, the body dies. Let's stand.